0: Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. Bible, open to Psalms chapter 1. We're going to be there in just a minute. We are right now in the middle of our bedroom series. And if this is your first time or you missed last week, let me kind of tell you what we're doing. Um, last week, we talked about the child's bedroom as a place of innocence. We talked about what our responsibility was as parents and grandparents to fight for, defend, protect, guard their innocence, that we feel like we really, really have a responsibility to stand in front of them because we know that Satan number one goal is to shatter the innocence in our children's life and so we need to be there holy Spirit driven and directed to fight for their innocence next week we're going to talk about the intimacy of a marriage bedroom of the married bedroom um, we're going to talk about sex as it pertains to the married the married couple and I even right now I'm stumbling over my words because I know it's going to be wonderfully uncomfortable next week and so make sure you're back to watch me sweat a little bit but it, it's good because God is good and he has a design for the marriage bedroom. But today we're going to look at the bedroom as a place of integrity. Everybody say integrity. It, that integrity that is formed as a single person, that integrity that is formed through middle school and high school, that integrity that is Most aggressively challenged in college and as a young adult, that integrity that is formed behind closed doors, behind the closed doors of the bedroom, will be the integrity that follows you the rest of your life. I think it's funny when you consider the bedroom, because something happens um, from the little kid to the junior high kid or the high school kid, because when, when you're little and you have your own bedroom, you just like what's in there because your mom decided you were going to like it. You know what I'm talking about? Like You don't necessarily like dinosaurs as a two-year-old, but your mom says, hey, we're going to decorate your room in dinosaurs, so you're going to be about dinosaurs. Let's buy them pajamas with dinosaurs on them. And so for whatever reason, well, the reason because mom, I guess, decided, you like dinosaurs, or maybe... Maybe it's pink, and your mom says, "Oh, she's a girl. We're gonna have pink," and so you have pink everything and princesses everywhere, and and those aren't really your choices or reflecting you or your identity. They're reflecting somebody else's choices over you. And so, because your mom is, you know, making the decisions, you have a pink dinosaur, uh, pink, not a pink dinosaur. Yeah, you know, that's that's very progressive today, right? This is, fits right in with our social standards. But. Uh, um, But you either have a dinosaur room or or a pink room because somebody else makes those decisions for you. But as you get older, your room becomes a reflection of you. What you like, what you enjoy, what you participate in. The ribbons that are hanging on your wall will, will represent your achievements or the trophies or the posters will represent your interests or, or as you get older, the type of de- decoration will, will be a reflection of you and what you like and what you enjoy, the music that's on in your room. It's a reflection of you. It represents the stage of life you're in. Whether the bed is made or messy is a good indicator of where you are in life. It's just a reflection of you personally it's your space it's a place to relax it's a place to rest it's a place to refresh it's a place to uh, pick and pop and stink even because whatever happens that's your bedroom it's your space you can kind of do what you want in there but the bedroom also has a connotation with it that can represent what happens behind closed doors right there's there's a, an aspect of intimacy that comes along with the bedroom. That's why many of you who are raising teenagers, you have a no-bedroom policy when um, boyfriends or girlfriends or even just friends of the opposite sex come over and they say, Hey, we're going to study. We're going to go up to my room. You can say you can study in the dining room where I can keep an eye on you the whole time. Because in the bedroom, you have this... This idea of something is going on behind closed doors when nobody else is looking. They're in private. And when we talk about integrity, we talk about the fact that your private life will match your public persona. Again, talking about integrity, we gotta make sure that we don't confuse the two. Integrity is who you really are. Your reputation is who you want to project yourself to be to others. It's not necessarily who you are, it's hiding who you really are to maintain your reputation. Your integrity is inside, internally, who you really are. Integrity is when what you do Matches up with what you say you believe. Who you really are. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 3 says this. The integrity of the upright guides them. But the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. This is a great verse. I I love this verse. If you're a highlighter or a circler, mark this in your scripture. This is a great verse. But I would submit that this verse is often forgettable. This is one of those verses that as you're reading your Project 365 or scripture, you will probably just read this and keep on going. It doesn't make an impact because most of us will look at this verse and think, I'm not treacherous. I'm not a crooked person, and so I must be a person of integrity. As we watch this spectrum, we try to identify where we are. We think, you know what, that's a long way down there. I'm not a treacherous person. Um, We think I'm not a perfect person. I'm not great. I mess up. You know, I'm not Jesus. I I, I don't make all good decisions, but I'm not all the way down there at the end of that path as a treacherous person either. So because I'm not treacherous, I must be a person of integrity. But the truth is, a crooked life always begins with a little compromise. A crooked life always begins with a little compromise. There's, a, there's a, a picture illustration that we often use. I've used it before to illustrate what I believe compromise does or how it works in our life. When we were growing up, we attended a church in Bridgeport uh, Grandpa was the pastor. My dad was the youth pastor there, and so um, me and RJ and some of the other kids, we just run around the church the whole time. And there was this area in the church. It had about seven stairs up, and then it kind of had this landing up here. And this was the closest thing we had to a playground in that church was these stairs. And so we were constantly playing on these stairs. And the goal was always to jump from the top to the bottom. So we were constantly jumping off these stairs. But every time we would go to the church, whether it was a Wednesday. Sunday, Tuesday, whatever it was, we didn't have the courage to jump from the top right away. As you step at the top, it was high enough that as you look down, you think, this is crazy. Nobody would be dumb enough to jump from the top. But we realized that we could work our way up. And so we, we formed this plan that if you go to the very bottom step, and you always had to start at the bottom. I don't know why, but we always did. You just always had to start at the bottom. If you start at the bottom and you jump off the bottom, That was easy. It wasn't scary. Then you go up to the second step and you jump off the second step. That was easy. It wasn't scary. And then you work your way all the way up to the very top and by the time you get to the top landing area it was a little bit uncomfortable but it wasn't scary or intimidating. And So you work your way all the way to the top. You jump off. Eventually you could take a running jump off the top and we would do this every time until somebody would twist an ankle, slam into the back wall or get hurt somehow because that was the goal. We wanted to jump, but we couldn't just jump from the top. We had to work our way up there from the very bottom. This is exactly how compromise works in our lives. It starts with something so small that it's no big deal. See, even we would always start at the bottom step. We didn't have to start at the bottom step. It was kind of stupid to start at the bottom step because everybody can take one step off the bottom step. Um, We could have easily started on step three or four because we were still kind of comfortable doing that. But we always, always, always started at the bottom. It was stupid to start there, but that's just what we did. That was that first step. And I want you to hear this. I think compromise works this way. Because compromise always starts stupid small. Compromise always starts stupid small. Something so small that you wouldn't even think that it's a big deal, that it's compromise anyway. So small that it doesn't look any different than anything that a thousand other people are doing on a daily basis. But you, in your heart... Because you have the voice of the Holy Spirit that's leading, guiding you. Know that it's compromise. And though it's little, and though nobody will notice it, nobody will say anything about it, you in your heart know that you've taken the first step of compromise. Maybe it's a small lie. Maybe it's an inappropriate joke. Maybe it's an Uh, just an errant thought. Maybe it's a jealous comment. Maybe it's a goodnight kiss. Maybe it's a questionable text. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, come on. Everything is a sin to you, Pastor Chris. I know how this goes. That's not what I'm saying. I I know sometimes how ridiculous this sounds. I know sometimes that it sounds stupid, but that's how compromise works. It always starts stupid small. And if you're not careful, you're going to find yourself doing things that you never thought you would do, going places that you never thought you would go, And participating in in sin that you never thought you would participate in, and the consequences can be absolutely devastating. But they always start small. I don't know about you, but I'm so sick and tired of reading articles and hearing on the news of another teacher that has had an affair with a student. I'm just overhearing this. I remember a couple years ago, the first time you hear about it, and you're like, oh my goodness, that is crazy. I can't believe something like this would ever happen. Now you hear about a new, uh, a new episode of this happening every week, and we're just numb to it. You know what I'm talking about? And as I'm listening to this or hearing the, the, for the first time of this happening, I, I remember thinking, how in the world does that happen? What, what level of crazy do you have to be to, as a thirty-something-year-old teacher, approach a twelve-year-old for physical sexual relationship? I mean, just you, you must be completely cuckoo to be able to do that. But then, as as they think about it, and I process it through things like this, it's it's these activities that these people are participating in that they never thought they would do because along the way they've made little compromises. And my guess is it started with something so stupid small that nobody in the room, no other teachers, no other faculty, no other students even knew it was going on. It started that small. But this is what happens. Whether it's a look or a comment or a touch that seems innocent enough, there's something that happens inside the person that knows that they are prepping to compromise. And what they do is they jump off that first step and they think this, I didn't get hurt, and I didn't get in trouble. I'm going to the next one. And they jump off that next step, and they think, I didn't get hurt, and I didn't get in trouble. So they go to the next one, and they jump, and they jump, and they jump. And before they know it, they are doing things and participating in and saying things that they never dreamed they would ever do because they've been willing to take one little step of compromise after another, after another, after another. Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I want you to notice this progression that the, the writer talks about in Psalm chapter 1. He goes from walking to standing to sitting. And I believe that this is a perfect picture of how compromise Or the lack of integrity works in the life of people, but most importantly today for our conversation, the life of a believer. Compromise shuts us down until we're numb to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It moves us from walking to standing to sitting until we are just completely done with our effort to maintain integrity. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time here this morning is consider these three steps. Let's look at the first one. Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Walking in the counsel of the wicked. So the question would be, who are you listening to? Who has influence in your life? Who has influence over you? What are you spending your time Consuming. What are the the television programs, the movies, the podcasts, the, the radio stations that you are listening to, and how is that affecting you? What are you clicking on? What are you reading? Who do you turn to for counsel and advice when life gets hard, when life throws you a curve, when you're in a tough spot, when you're trying to make a decision? Who do you go to? Where do you turn for that counsel? Scripture tells us that Solomon... Um, who was the third king in Israel's history, David's son. If you remember, David was the shepherd boy who killed Goliath. Um, Many elevate David as the greatest king in Israel's history. Solomon was David's son, and he became king after David. And um, uh, Scripture identifies him as the wisest person to ever walk the face of the earth other than Jesus. But Solomon was wise. He was smart. he, He had his act together. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon... Praise a prayer of dedication over the temple that he had just built. It was essentially their church that they had built to honor God. Their, their temple there in Jerusalem, they built this to honor God. And most commentaries tell us that by today's standards, the value of that temple, the, the cost of that temple to build was right around $10 billion. Okay? B, $10 billion. So this was an impressive structure, gold everywhere, and it was just magnificent. And so Solomon prays over this temple, he dedicates the building to the Lord and the people to the Lord, and it was a real highlight moment for him. In 1 Kings chapter 9, God speaks to Solomon and he gives him this promise. He says, Solomon, if you keep my commands and you live with integrity, if you worship only me, set me apart as your one and only, then I will establish your throne In this kingdom forever. But if you don't, I'm going to tear Israel from this land. So if you honor me, if you maintain integrity, I'm going to establish your throne. But if you don't, I'm going to remove Israel from this land. Basically, God is telling Solomon, whatever you do, don't compromise. Do not compromise. But Solomon takes a step. Solomon jumps off the bottom rung. Because what he did is he begins to invite people from foreign nations, foreign diplomats, and kings and queens into Israel. And he's basically showing off. He's showing them around. He's, he's walking them through the foyer of the temple and saying, oh, look at this. And let me show you this. And, and just talking to them about how impressive everything is and, and kind of showing off all of his stuff. And, and it doesn't really look like that big of a deal. It doesn't look like sin. Even people who are watching it would would understand the necessity of this as a king to have political allies and to build relationships. You know, you don't want to be fighting with everybody, and so it it seems smart. But in this, it's compromise. And but it's so stupid, small, we wouldn't even notice it. And not only does he invite them in and starts talking to them, but they're sitting at the table together. They're eating and. They're giving advice, and they begin to get advice and counsel from these people that God had told him specifically to separate himself from. And what happens is Solomon begins to listen to the wrong people. As it relates to our message over these last couple of weeks in the context and in what we're talking about in this bedroom, there's, there's a lot of the connotation that you know, we are addressing the, the sexual aspect of our lives and, and what happens in that, and or romance and relationships. And I think that so many of our relationships are a mess today because we've been listening to the wrong people. I think that our teenagers and our young adults are, are in toxic, dysfunctional relationships because they've been listening to the wrong people, the wrong advice. The world counsels in, in so many silly different ways the world says, look, find a relationship that will fulfill you. Find a relationship that will complete you. And so whatever desire, whatever fantasy or fetish that you have, make sure you find a relationship that will feed that and nurture that and grow that. It doesn't matter how how off or deviant or sinful it is. Just find a relationship where you can be you in that. And uh, the, the world will tell you, you know, find somebody you're compatible with. Find somebody that that makes you happy. Find somebody that you fit with personally, emotionally, and sexually. The world will tell you that it's stupid to save yourself sexually for marriage, that, that you wouldn't buy a, a car if you don't drive it first. And, and all of those things they're saying to you, and they're saying, this is wisdom, and this is the counsel that you need to be following. And, and most of our young people in our culture today are buying this hook, line, and sinker, even though it is completely against everything that God has for them. You know this, right? through scripture, the world today will also say, um, when they're counseling and love and romance, to find the one. Find the one, right? Um, How many of you have had the conversation about whether or not he or she is the one in your life? Come on, let me see your hands. Even those of you who have been married for 50, 60 years, you had the one conversation didn't you because that's that's what the world keeps telling us and, and the world will say something like this look don't marry the one that you think you could live with marry the one you couldn't live without oh right. and our romantic heart just flutters oh that's right the one I can't live without and we think oh I want a notebook relationship and all this weird like goo goo gaga butterfly blah right But that's what the world is going to say. And and we buy this. If you're single, you're looking for the one. If you're dating, you're hoping that he or she is the one. If you're married, you're like, man, I don't know if you're the one or not, you know? (sighs) I don't, maybe I missed the one. Maybe my one married somebody else, and so you're like number seven, but you'll do, I guess, you know? But we're, we're so focused, we're so obsessed with the one. I often get asked, Pastor Chris, how do I know if she's the one? How do I know if he's the one? Because we're obsessed with the one. The dream of being with that one who will fulfill you and be with you and help you and never let you down and, and love you forever. And, and, and so if you're dating, you always got your antenna up. Could she be the one? Could he be the one? And maybe you're at the stage in life where you're a little skeptical that there is a one. You know, I don't even know if there's a one for me. I, just, I Nobody's out there. I can't find him or I can't find her. And, and, but I want you to know this morning. This is, this is so important. I want you to know this morning that the one is more than just a fairy tale. The one is an absolute reality. And most of you husbands just missed a perfect opportunity to say amen and squeeze your wife. That's right, and I know it because I have the one right here. You know? The one is a reality. You can have the one, and what I would say is don't settle for anything less. The one who will love you no matter what That one who is worth committing 100% of yourself to. The one who changes the way you act, and not because they force it, just because you want to be better. The one who, who gives you reason to smile, gives you reason to get up in the morning. The one that causes the world to shine a little bit brighter. The one is out there, I promise you, you will be able to find him. And you know how I know? It's simple, because God is the one. I know you're thinking, oh, you tricked me. We were talking about something else. But listen, this is so true. God is the one. God is the one that will love you and fulfill you and never let you down. He is the one. So if God is the one, your spouse or your future spouse is the number two. So you're not looking for the one. You're looking for the two. Because The number one spot in your life is already filled. I believe just one of the a defining moment in my marriage with Melissa was one day she was spending some time with the Lord. She was praying about some things, and and um, she tells me uh, that she feels the Lord is really clearly saying to her that um, Chris is not your number one. He's not your source. He doesn't define you. He doesn't sustain you. He doesn't complete you. He's not the most important one in your life. And and Melissa, as she was relating this, she was saying, God was saying, that's me. That's my role. That's my spot. And I remember she'd had this conversation with me. And then a couple weeks or so later, um, we were were talking in a Sunday school class and and she shares this with the Sunday school class, you know, saying that you know he's not, he's not the 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 sustainer, he's not the life giver. That it's God. And and I, I remember that there were tears and this moment. And I remember kind of you know like, man, you're hurting my feelings a little bit, but I get it. You know what I mean? And and so it, it was in that moment that as we talk and as we communicate, I mean, Melissa just with with real clarity was able to to. Um, speak biblical truth over our relationship and, and it created so much life in there but, but there's this moment where you realize like, we are not going to have the you complete me relationship because the reality is the you complete me relationship is anti-biblical and this might not be romantic but it's right amen you can't place a person in the position that is reserved for God it will not work. The council of the world says find the one. God says I am the one. The first step of compromise is trying to place a romantic relationship in that place that God has designed for a redemptive one. In this area, you will always compromise if you put a man or a woman in God's place as number one in your life. And what that small compromise does what that one compromise does is it will lead to one more and one more and one more when you put a man in a place that God belongs then you're going to begin to compromise you're going to begin to make choices and because you think he's the one you think well I better send him this text message of me half-dressed because he's the one and I have to work really really hard to keep the one what if I miss out on the one And then you have to to start sleeping with him because, man, if, if he's the one, I don't want to lose the one, and so I'll sleep with him now to keep the one. Listen, you're not looking for the one. You're looking for the number two, but God will never give you a number two that asks you to sin to keep him. It just won't happen. That's not God's plan for your life. So refuse to compromise. Integrity says, I will discover the plan that the one God has for my life and walk in it. I will understand that God is not anti-relationship or anti-sex, that he created it. And he created uh, an avenue for us to have a great, godly, fulfilling sex In the confines of marriage. Those are the parameters that God has established for his people to engage in sex within. It's in the confines of marriage. And I don't say this to make anybody feel bad or guilty. Look, I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying this happens or this begins to happen. You begin to discover, when you begin to discover what God's plan, what the one, what his plan is for your life. And that he's the one and not your bay or your boo or whatever weird term that we're using these days. Walk not in the counsel of the wicked. Number two, number two, we're talking about standing in the path of sinners. He went from walking, which is moving, to now standing still on the path or in the path of sinners. I know it makes me cry too, man, just thinking about this stuff. I just can't handle it. All over it. So we compromise, and when we compromise, we slowly shut down. It slowly shuts us down. We go from jumping off the bottom step where nobody notices to to making our way up the staircase. Now we aren't just listening to their advice, but we're going where they go. We're on the same path as them. That means that we think how sinners think. We justify actions, how sinners justify actions. We get offended at Scripture the way sinners get offended at Scripture. We get offended at the pastor for saying things like I've already said this morning because we don't want him to be judging us. And, and like I said, I'm not judging you, but but I, I'm not convinced that you're not a sinner either. Amen? I, I know you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't have to judge you. Scripture already tells me you're a sinner. Like it, and, and we know that we all kind of struggle with different things and we're all in process. And we talked about um, God who started a good work in us is faithful to complete it if we allow him. And so there are areas of our life, your life, my life that God is cleaning and refining and fixing and becoming more like him. So it's not a judging thing. It's a, hey, look, we're all in process of becoming more like Christ, amen? But there are certain areas that the enemy keys in on and says, if I can get a culture to look at this one thing that is sin and say it's not, then he is winning. And we got to make sure that that doesn't happen. Amen? So I'm not judging. But we have to pay attention to this. We have to be aware of what compromise does and what happens when we stand in the path of sinners. There may be some of you, you're here today and you're kind of at the point where you're like, Man, I've been hanging around some of this stuff. I've been... Sort of watching some of this stuff from a distance but but as, as, as hard as i can i 've been fighting the pull to participate and maybe you're here today and, and, and you feel like you're living in this world where you got the little devil character over here and the little angel character over here and, and he's saying this and then he's saying this and you're like, man, I know that I should do this but this sounds like it could be a lot more fun so I don't know and, and you're really kind of struggling in between what decision to make. I would say this, if you stand on the path, you will soon participate. If you stand on the path, you will soon participate let's consider Solomon one more time he went from walking in the council of the wicked to standing in their path and before long he wasn't just talking to them he wasn't just giving and receiving advice he was participating in business deals he, he was engaging in um, political negotiations with people who have been identified as enemies of God he started trading horses and chariots with people that he wasn't supposed to I want you to see something very interesting. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, it was, it was a long time before there was any king in Israel's history and God had spoken to Moses and he was basically telling them, look, I don't want you to have a king or ask for a king, but if you do, there's some standards that the king must exist under. And, and God, in his, in his just om, you know, omniscience, he knows the direction that people are going and the way they're going to act. And, and so, again, God doesn't want them to ask for a king but knows that they're going to. And this is the warning he gives them in verse 17, verse 14 of Deuteronomy. He says, you are about to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, the promised land. When you take it over and settle there, you may think... Though I don't want you to, and though you shouldn't, and though, uh, and though God has established himself as a very, very adequate king over their nation. He says, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. Verse 17. He says, the king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Verse 18, when he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the the Levitical priests. So basically, he, he is saying, when he becomes king, he sits down on the throne and he writes with his hand the first five chapters of the Bible. He must do this. He must always keep that copy that he just hand wrote with him and read it daily as long as he lives. So he needs to write the first five books of the Bible and he needs to read it, study it, memorize it daily. That he, that that way he will learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all the terms and instructions and decrees. Verse 20. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way did you catch that it will prevent him from turning away from these commands in the stupid small ways in the ways that as the rest of culture and the rest of society and these other kingdoms look at it they don't look like sin but he knows they're sin because he's been reading and studying and writing scripture for every day of his reign and that will keep him from turning from these commands in the smallest ways and finally, look what it says. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. The promise that God gave Solomon was just a reiteration of the promise that he had established for the kingdom. So that was the instruction given to all the kings, even before there was any king. But we fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26. Solomon, has, he's already built up a huge... of chariots and horses. Look at what verse 27 says. The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone and valuable cedar timber was as common as the sycamore trees that grow in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Verse 29. At the time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150 pieces of silver. They were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. And so, um, Solomon is making decisions that if you would read this, probably you wouldn't even know that there's compromise. Maybe he's just jumping off the second step. It doesn't even look like sin to you. But because of the word of God in his life, but because of what the Holy Spirit has specifically directed through Scripture, we know and he knows because he's reading Scripture that he is making small compromises. And this is what compromise does. It justifies the path of sinners. Because everything that Solomon does and he's doing, it makes sense. We feel like he should probably maintain good, healthy, strong, amicable relationships with these other nations. But God is saying, no, you separate yourself from these nations. Seems like it's not that big of a deal. Solomon is already talking to them. What's the problem with doing a little business? The, the, The progression is subtle. And so we constantly have to ask ourselves personally, am I going to be a person of compromise or a person of integrity? Will I daily sow integrity or daily sow compromises? And, and maybe just little compromises, ways that nobody else knows that they are. So let's go back to the bedroom for just a minute and talk about purity, because this is where purity starts, compromise versus integrity. Living a pure life starts with having a pure heart. And it, it isn't necessarily about what you should or shouldn't do based on your relationship status. That's not necessarily the heart of purity. Like What can I do? What can I get away with based on the level of relationship that I have? Like, we're exclusive so we can do things. We're living together so we can do things. Or, or we're married, so this. Look, look, it's not necessarily, a pure heart is not necessarily just a list of what you should or shouldn't do. Purity is, is a fight for your heart. Amen? It's a fight for your heart. And the fight in purity is really hard. The, the, the purity is a fight before you're married. When you're dating and you're wanting to maintain a biblical standard of relationship as it regards to your physical intimacy, fighting for purity is really, really hard. Amen? And this is the problem. Those of us who are married pretend that it wasn't hard for us. It was. Amen? Those of you who tried to maintain biblical physical boundaries when you were dating or engaged know that that fight was really, really hard. And we have to stop pretending that it was easy and stop judging people who think it's really, really hard today because it was really, really hard for us. I don't care if you're just married or you were married 50 years ago. It was really hard. Yes? We have to be able to admit that. But... The fight for purity doesn't just stop or doesn't stop after you say, I do. Amen? The fight for purity is really, really hard today, even if you're married. And it's a fight for the heart. It's a, the, the access that we have to pornography and to all sorts of other, other avenues to explore sinful sexual means, it's, it's, just, it's really hard to stay pure. And so that fight doesn't end after you say, I do. So guard your heart. Proverbs chapter 4, 23 says, above all else, guard your heart. Everything you do flows from it. We don't need a change of behavior. We need a change of heart. So guard your heart. I would say pay attention to the gateways in your life. I believe that every compromise that you fall into has a gateway that you have to pass through first. It has a marker that in your spirit, if you're paying attention, you know that if I pass through this gateway, if I cross this marker, I am going to compromise. This is where I can stop. If I take one more step, I know what I'm going to do. And I know you're not going to publicize what that is. I know you're going to guard that gateway very, very closely because you don't want everybody to know that you're doing something very small, but it's going to lead to some sin, and so you're going to guard it, but but you know that that gateway is there. We have to pay attention. We have to be aware of those and identify those gateways. Where are the places? When are the times that lead you to compromise? What are the steps that are going to cost you your integrity? Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's the car, the basement, the bedroom, or the bar. Maybe it's a certain time, the weekend, after midnight, a, a situation. Maybe it's after you have gotten into a, a real like, aggressive fight at work or with your spouse or with your a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's a season of stress. Maybe it's an app that you click on or a website that, that it may not be sin, but man, it's the gateway that leads you to other places. We often set ourselves up for failure because we pass through those gateways and we think, you know what, I'm strong enough to find an exit after going through. But the reality is, when you pass through those gateways, you've already made a decision to compromise. If you stay on the path, you will participate. Number three, sitting in the seat of scoffers. Walking, standing, now sitting. The compromise is now complete. The heart of the believer is shutting down. Integrity has been all but abandoned. Consider Solomon one more time. Consider his final step. What started out as just conversation, something stupid small, has spiraled out of control, and it's taking him further than he ever wanted to go, and it's cost him more than he ever wanted to pay. In 1 Kings chapter 11, if you have your Bibles open, as you're looking over the the chapter title, the marker of what that particular chapter is about, it'll say one of two things. It'll either say Solomon, Solomon's many wives or Solomon takes many wives or Solomon turns from the Lord. And what started out as so pure and holy and divine because of one compromise after another, after another, after another, just three chapters later, it's abandoning God altogether. This is no little thing. At this point in chapter 11, Solomon has taken a running leap into sin he's marrying foreign wives he's he's got lots of wives lots of concubines he's being influenced by them and and maybe what started out as political has changed into something that is fully affecting him he's building altars to to worship gods that that his wives serve. And so he's got altars to Chemosh and Molech who are demonic gods. And and what started out as a relationship with Jehovah God who was his one and only has just become one of many, uh, one God in in a mix of just a bunch of gods. And, And he has completely abandoned the charge that God had given him after he prayed the prayer of dedication over the $10 billion building that says, if you remain faithful to me and only me, I will keep you forever. But if you turn from me, I'm going to rip Israel out of this land. And this is what we do. We, we, um, we want the promises of God, but we reject the warnings of God. The warnings in Scripture that God gives are for your benefit. They're for my benefit. Let's listen to them, amen? As a result... The nation of Israel was torn apart by war. Many of the people were taken into captivity. What started as something stupid small resulted in the destruction of a nation. And he reached a point in his relationship with the Lord where his spirit just grew numb. Sin no longer bothered him or affected him. For Solomon, integrity was a thing of the past. Sin will always take you further than you're meant to go and make you pay more than you're willing to pay. My fear is there are some of you here this morning and you're at this stage. The choices you make, the choices you're making, you know in your head, scripture identifies as sin. But if you were honest, you would say, but they have absolutely no effect on my heart. That you've moved from walking to standing and now you're just sitting in this place where you don't hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit has absolutely no power over you because you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. When you're single, your bedroom is your personal space. It represents your integrity and who you are when you're alone. Will it be marked by compromise or will it be marked by integrity? We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit mynsag.com.